thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. We've always taken mums the word to mean keeping things to ourselves. Well, this is no longer the case as we provide mums with the natural, honest, and reliable resources they need from experts and other mums to keep their families happy, healthy, and safe. Be prepared to use your passion for parenting to empower yourself with the knowledge of choice. Welcome to Mums the Word with your host, mum and chiropractor, Kaz Jaff. Word listeners, very excited to have an episode on sleep for you this week, which we haven't done and I know you've asked for. So it was very exciting that we uh, we could uh, bring you Sophie Acott, who is the founder of Happy Baby Sleep, a holistic sleep consultancy based in Melbourne. She's a mother of three, an author, a blogger, a home birth enthusiast and a hand-in-hand parenting advocate. Absolutely perfect for this podcast, wouldn't you say? Sophie's journey was inspired by her own children's sleep challenges and she remains passionately committed to supporting other parents to overcome their sleep difficulties and restoring the parent-child connection. I really love this episode and what I love about Sophie is that she's, um, well one, she's super passionate. She's also a mum living in the trenches doing what we're doing and getting our children uh, comfortable and settled and, and feeling connected to us but also sleeping um, which is uh, is so necessary for, for both parties involved, parents and child. But um, what I really love the most is that she has the holistic approach and uh, that's something that I resonate with and I'm sure most of you listeners out there do too um, and uh, really happy to bring in this episode and uh, please reach out to to anyone close to you in the area or Sophia she also works online um, if you are having sleep difficulties because what I see in my work as well is that when mum's not happy baby's not happy and you have this uh, um, downward cycle or downward spiral as I would say and when things go well you have the upward spiral so make sure uh, that you do reach out if you are struggling because um, there is help out there and uh, enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining us, Sophie, on Mums the Word. I'm so happy to have you on and to share all about the work you're doing with the listeners. But first, please tell the listeners all about yourself. Great. Thanks so much, Kaz. I'm so happy to be here. Um, So a little bit about me. I live on the Mornington Peninsula uh, with my three children and my husband, and I'm a holistic sleep consultant. And I guess by holistic, I sort of, I know that uh, term can be thrown around quite a bit, but um, really I have made an effort to steer away from, you know, the normal behavioral techniques uh, that is used by a lot of sleep trainers or consultants or sleep schools um, and really addressing on the fundamental the core um, you know I guess the holistic side to sleep so addressing all the fundamentals such as you know routine and environment as well as you know emotional well-being which is a huge part a huge focus uh, of, of my business so um, I'm a massive advocate of uh, hand-in-hand parenting uh, which was uh, pioneered by Patty Whipfler and it's parenting by connection so I will go run through that obviously uh, today and but uh, that is a main source of, um, of inspiration through my work and how I work with a lot of clients and their babies to overcome their sleep challenges so really focusing on the emotional well-being aspect rather than just the behavioral and sleep training so I would actually say that I do no sleep training at all um, which is kind of very rare I I did start out doing that in my business and um, and I guess you know it does work for a lot of babies uh, there are so many variables to sleep so it's really difficult to say uh, you know whether a behavioral approach or you know no cry approach or or you know whether an emotional well-being approach is going to to be the most successful but I feel that it's so important to always honor the emotional well-being and the parent-child connection in anything that you're doing to change sleep patterns or even behavioral inject 
behavior in general for, for children. So Me too. Well, I really um, and hear, if, if we can, um, just what got you into this work. I mean, I know you're a mum of three, so I'd just love to hear the background story. Sure. And then, yeah, I definitely want to hear all your expertise and advice to help mums out there. Sure, sure. Well, um, I had no interest in, in, in anything. If you had have told me 10 years ago that I would be a sleep consultant, <laughs> I probably would have laughed at you. <laughs> And, um, you know, back in the back in the days where we actually, you know, went out partying and had less sleep than what we do, you know, now with children, um, and it was all out of choice, but somehow we were more refreshed with less sleep um, when it was out of choice, which is really strange. But, um, but having, you know, obviously children and, well, the reality is that a lot of kids don't sleep, a lot of babies don't sleep. Um, you know, a lot of new mums aren't, or even pregnant mums really aren't a stranger to sleepless nights or, or having difficulty, you know, sleeping through you know being uncomfortable or just being woken up by kids um and you know uh, my first child actually it wasn't really an issue I didn't know anything that I knew now um with my first and she wasn't a bad sleep she wasn't particularly a good sleeper but you know it just never was an issue um until I had my second child and it's quite ironic looking back because my first child was a um a hospital birth and I found it quite traumatic, uh, the whole birthing process and experience. And so looking back on that, I would have thought that like that, that particular experience with my daughter would have been, um, or translated to the most difficult sleeper out of my three, considering the last two were home births and planned, <laughs> um, but they were the worst sleepers. So really interesting to note that. So um, there's obviously. no correlation basically <laughs> with how a baby comes out. Well, you know, there is. There's a huge correlation. Um, you know, it's just that there's so many variables. So, you know, what happens, you know, there's obviously a way up of, of temperament as well. Um, there's so many factors that can contribute to it and also, you know, where where you are. Um, so, you know, I guess with my second, um, although I had a beautiful planned home birth, it was really fast. Um, and like the second stage of labor was only kind of 45 minutes and I only sort of had to, I guess, push, <laughs> you know, two pushes and he was out, which was, I guess, you know, a lot of, a lot of people would see that as an ideal situation, but I felt, um, not traumatized afterwards, but it's, you are in shock. And I guess, you know, for the baby, what, what I, I'm realizing now, I'm doing a lot of research and study into um, prenatal and, and perinatal, um, you know, experience and, and, and the effect of birth trauma on babies. And um, what we do know is that sometimes if the second stage of labor is too long or even too short, that it can have, you know, detrimental effects on, uh, on the babies. Um, and when they're born, you know, you can see, sort of, I guess, you know, colic-like behaviour, so persistent crying, unsettledness, difficulty sleeping and that sort of thing. I guess at the time when I had my second and that was the experience that I had, I wasn't aware of that. Um, so obviously everyone's a genius in hindsight, aren't they? Had I gone back and had that experience knowing what I know now, I would have done a million things different. But what I experienced out of that uh, you know, birth process uh, was, you know, a baby that didn't sleep longer than two hours at a time uh, for, for a good sort of five or six months. Uh, and, you know, he was just, oh, just miserable, just crying. And, and it was a really stressful experience for everybody. Uh, I think my first had a really difficult time adjusting as well because a lot of my time and energy was tied up with the second and she was used to having all of my time and I guess the the classic case of, of anyone experiencing having and you know introducing a new sibling to the family but I found that experience really quite difficult it wasn't until 
I guess, yeah, my second was five months that I was so sick. <laughs> I remember it was Christmas time and I was—I had the flu and um, on top of a stomach bug and I wasn't getting any more than probably three hours combined sleep a night and my mum actually just handed me the name of uh, a sleep consultant and uh, she actually was a, a mother craft nurse in, in a previous life. So I got onto her and ended up deciding to get some help. I'd actually, like many of us, mums you know we sort of think we can do it all on our own and if we reach out for help it it's sometimes considered a weakness and I don't know why I, I can I, I persisted for so long in you know like our whole family unit you know no one was getting sleep and I was miserable and our babies were unhappy and I think you just kind of get into that uh, not even depression, but just the daily grind of just working away and feeling that, you know, if you, you persist, maybe things will get better and not wanting to ask for help for, you know, sign of weakness. But I thought enough's enough. And anyway, so got help with a consultant over the phone and it was very different because I guess being a mother craft nurse, having worked in sleep schools, their approach is very much behavioural. So I did do a modified cry it out with him. Uh, had I <laughs> known, obviously, as I was saying, what I know now, I wouldn't have done that. However, I was so desperate at the time and I didn't really care what I had to do, to be honest. I just wanted to get some more sleep. And I think that's where a lot of parents that I deal with are in the same boat or any parent in, in, in that um, matter who has young children who are sleep, you know, having sleepless nights or experiencing some sort of sleep deprivation, um, you know, they're so desperate for, for anyone to just come in and be able to fix the problem. Um, you know, that's why we do see a lot of people going to sleep schools, a lot of people um, going down the extinction path. Um, I'm not quite sure if you've heard of that. That was pioneered by Weisbluth, so Mark Weisbluth. So basically it is leaving your child from seven to seven um, and not going in to check on them at all, which um, makes me want to cry. I just haven't think- heard of that and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> no, I know. Actually, it makes me want to well up when I, when I talk about that. So, you know, that is an option. And it's really really sad that people actually go down these paths because they feel like they don't have any other option because they're not aware of of any other way that they can get their baby to sleep and not only that I guess you know the challenge is that just as our babies are different we're all different as well so we do have different um, bandwidths Uh, you know there are some parents that I know that really just can't can't function unless they get eight hours sleep a night you know others are really fine to get three to five hours sleep Um, we all have different expectations of baby sleep different um, levels of support you know different numbers of children there's so many variables that really go into us being a you know our experience of having our kids and what we are willing to put up with and what we're willing not to Um, that I guess you know these parents that there's a time and a place absolutely for behavioral training Um, you know if if mum didn't have the family support and, you know, she's not coping, then definitely like sleep school is a perfect option uh, in, in that respect. But, you know, I think on the flip side of that, I've, I've had parents uh, email me and they've got a six-week-old baby and, you know, they sort of <laughs> they say, you know, I'm just at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. My baby wakes twice a night and um, I'm just exhausted. You know, can you help? And, you know, my response to that is always, oh, my goodness, you know, if my 10-month-old was only waking twice a, a night. Unrealistic expectations <laughs> or something going on there. Yeah. 
It is, it is. And so that's, I guess, a real passion of mine to sort of reinstall that, reinstate, uh, you know, what is real realistic uh, to expect with baby sleep. You know, babies don't always sleep. <laughs> um, and, you know, there are the babies that that sometimes, you know, I think there's a huge element that that it's temperamental. You know, some babies uh, just sleep through the night, and it doesn't matter what the parents do. And the other ones, you know, you can cross all your your t's and dot all your eyes, and still these babies wake sort of two to three times a night. So you know, there's all of that. And I think um, you also mentioned that it can happen with a different child in the same family. So you can do the same thing and get a different result with a different child. And I think that's absolutely. also very pertinent point to make. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, because they're all different little people and, you know, it's, it's you know, classic because I deal with a lot of uh, uh, second, third and fourth children in my business as well. And um, I know that those parents, when they write to me, they're so embarrassed <laughs> to say to, to reach out for help because they say to me, you know, it's my third child, I should know better. And, you know, there's no such thing. Like we're all doing the best that we can and they're all so different. And what worked for the first won't necessarily and often doesn't work for the second or consecutive children. So, you know, and when I'm talking about behavioural sleep training or or those sort of strategies specifically are really temperament-based. So if, if you've got a child, for example, who is quite relaxed, quite adaptable, quite you know easygoing they're probably going to sleep no matter what you do you know you can you can execute a whole emotional well-being strategy and everything which you know in my opinion we should be doing anyway but um you know you could go down that path and they would sleep anyway you could go to sleep school and they'd sleep anyway you could get a private consultant and they would sleep anyway you know it doesn't really matter what you do if they've got it in their genes to sleep well and they're adaptable and they're sort of easygoing pretty cruisy they're going to sleep and they're the kids that I get through my business who, you know, we work on the fundamentals and, you know, they're, they're kind of sleeping through the night in three, in three nights, which is awesome. And I never really hear from them again <laughs> other than, you know, to get a lo- lovely sort of testimonial. But, um, you know, there's the other kids that are, you know, and getting back to my second child, like lovingly high needs, <laughs> as I like to refer to him. And, you know, he's quite emotional, um, quite... Um, I guess, yeah, just just sensitive in nature and, you know, they're the babies that tend to have more difficulty sleeping without parental intervention. So um, it can result, it can obviously be an impact of, of um, the pregnancy experience itself, like if there's stress in, in pregnancy or medication in pregnancy, also the birth experience can impact, you know, how sensitive or emotional or uh, unsettled a child is but you know when you're talking about temperament and um, you know my second child is an example he's you know he's so sensitive a lot of those sort of babies do have uh, colic-like symptoms and it's quite interesting because I know I sort of went off track there a little bit but you know when I had my second and he had that colic you know you you just as a mother and even as a mother of two you think you're going to know better don't you with the second but you sort of you know you always get thrown these curveballs and so I was just desperate to to have this baby who not even sleep just not crying and miserable all the time that you know as a mum it stresses you out so much to see your baby in what seemed like pain so you know took him to a pediatrician and um and obviously you know they diagnosed it with colic because he was otherwise healthy and putting on weight uh but obviously he diagnosed me with yeah colic and and gave me some low sex so some drugs to give him and um and you know nothing improved i've got the 
went down the homeopathic route and um, yeah like I said it was sort of we battled it out for five or six months until we managed to get help but um, you know looking back at that experience and even where he is now he's still the same temperament and you know he still has difficulty adjusting to change and when I had my third um, I experienced the same sort of thing. I, I would say that my second child has been my biggest teacher in everything that I've done. He's been the catalyst for, for, for me, you know, doing all my research and my study and my training and, and probably the biggest inspiration for me getting into this work. Um, and I think, you know, the passion that I have for what I do stems from having been in the depths <laughs> of despair with, you know, lack of sleep, having lived it and breathed it and, having come out the end of that tunnel, like, you know, seen the light at the end of the tunnel when I got some help with him and, you know, the first bit of sleep that you have in over five months going, I just, knowing how big that, you know, it's such a hot topic sleep is, like every single one of my friends with 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 babies and young children just aren't getting any sleep. You know, everyone talks, it's one of the biggest things that you hear when someone has a new baby, everyone says, oh, how do, how do they sleep? You know, are you getting any sleep? Oh, you poor thing, you're not getting any sleep. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a big topic of conversation. You sort of feel like you're a tribe that you understand each other and why you're all zombies and people with the, who don't have kids don't understand how tired you are and you'll never complain about being tired again and things like this. <laughs> No, you just never do, do you? I mean, you know, and that's why it's funny because we used to do this, you know, we used to self-inflict no sleep on on, our, on ourselves in the party days and it's just so different now, you know. But um, I think, yeah, it's just knowing how big that was. I just really wanted to help other people. I wanted other people um, to feel like they had hope and, you know, to be able to enjoy parenthood again because, you know, what? and you would know with children yourself, it's just it goes so quickly, they grow up so quickly and I didn't want to, you know, personally I didn't want to be, you know, 10 years down the track and have these children that, you know, I just kind of wished wished the time away and just treaded water and, you know, it was just so hard, you know, and it doesn't need to be so hard, I think, you know. Um, and I guess there are so many different ways that you can get to, to where you want to be, you know, to improve sleep. Um, I think probably the start is trying to, and what I do most in my business is really trying to ascertain the reason why a baby's not sleeping. Um, it will be different for every single family. Um, sometimes it's one thing, sometimes it's a combination of 10 different things or more. Um, you know, for example, there's a there's a case that sticks out in my my, my mind actually, and um, I started working with this client when her baby was seven months, and I do deal with a lot of attachment parents. It just seems to be the way uh, that that uh, things have worked out, just because I do focus on more of a holistic approach. But this one lady who contacted me, she was co-sleeping and breast sleeping with her seven-month-old, so he was actually waking oh, I don't know, maybe 10 times a night. So every time he fell off the boob overnight, he would sort of start screaming until she put him back on and then he would fall back asleep. And so wasn't an ideal situation by any chance. Uh, and we started working together and we obviously work on all the fundamentals. So I always looked at, at routine and environment, um, all the sort of the things that most other people would do. And also, you know, they do address that in sleep schools. Um, but then, you know, also I asked her the question, you know, what was when was the last time you sort of just tried to, you know, put him down in the cot or anything? And she kind of 
had never tried to, to do anything different. You know, it's just been she just was in the motion and, and had been doing this thing uh, for, you know, day in and day out just because, I, I don't know, scared that she, he wouldn't adjust, scared that he wouldn't be able to sleep, scared that the whole family would be, you know, awake and, and not being able to sleep, you know, during the whole change process. And I, I think it becomes we do just – not not give up, but we do become a little bit complacent because the, I think it's, you know, the pain-pleasure principle, isn't it? We sort of do more to avoid pain than we do to gain pleasure. And so until the the pain gets too great, we, we kind of don't make any change. But, um, you know, she'd never put him down. So what we did was working on, you know, obviously emotional well-being. I like to always some of the core hand-in-hand um, philosophies are sort of doing, you know, special time with our children. So, you know, 10 to 20 minutes a day of like one-on-one really focused time on our children. And it's funny because most people say, oh, I spend all day every day with my kids. You know, I can't possibly spend any more time with them. But, you know, is that one-on-one undistracted time, you know, I, I mean, no phones, not getting up to get a drink of water or go to the toilet or, you know, write something down that you might forget or anything like that. It's just engaging with your child, you know. So if you've got a young child, a seven-month-old in this example, you know, getting down on, on the ground with them and, and eye, plenty of eye contact and, you know, rough and tumble on the ground. So a little bit of, of roughhousing play, which is always good for, for emotional connection and safety to build trust. Um, you know, that's that's one thing I always get my clients to do. Um, and another one is really honouring the baby's need to express their feelings through through crying, you know, crying, grizzling. I know we're always quick to, and I think this is probably because we're sleep deprived most of us and we don't have the support, you know, or outlet, but, you know, we hear our child cry and our initial response is to stop the crying. And a lot of us use dummies or rocking or shushing or patting or, you know, we pop our baby on the breast just to stop the crying because it makes us feel uncomfortable or we feel that, you know, it's just it's best for the baby to, you know, to not be crying. But um, our babies actually really need to offload their feelings. So obviously provided that we have addressed all of the fundamentals, all of the the, the key needs such as, you know, they're warm enough, they're not, they're not too cold, not too hot, uh, they're not hungry, you know, sometimes they just need to obviously a cuddle, all of those sort of key things. Um, and provided all of those have been met, then sometimes I just need to cry for, for stress relief or for, for uh, you know, to, to vent frustrations. Um, frustration is during times of milestones. So obviously when they're learning to walk, learning to crawl, um, it's a huge, huge um, change for them. So uh, they can naturally become quite frustrated. They're, they're, um, their heads want to do so much more than what their bodies are capable of. So <laughs> sometimes they just need to offload that they're stressed and they're just frustrated and, you know, they're overstimulated or overtired. So acknowledging that, uh, you know, that, you know, really it's called stay listening, what hand in hand call it. So it's really just, you know, if our babies are crying and all other needs have been met, then it's really, you know, getting close uh, and supporting them through those feelings just by listening. So, you know, an example of this might be, you know, validating and um, your child. So I do this a lot when we're, when I'm working with clients to break, say, a feed-to-sleep kind of pattern. Um, you know you know that the baby's been fed an hour beforehand, so definitely not hungry, and everything else has been addressed and, 
the real reason they're crying is because they don't know how else to get to sleep other than using the breath. So, you know, just holding them close and saying, sweetheart, I understand, I understand this is really hard for you. Yeah, you know, I know you're not hungry and I'm right here for you and I love you. And really just holding that space for them to, you know, really offload. Um, mostly what those feelings are is frustration and anger and confusion and, you know, obviously a little bit of sadness and all of that um, enabling them to get it out. And it's very different. Obviously, a lot of people will think, well, isn't that still a cried out approach? But the difference is, is that you are still offering them comfort. You're still holding them lovingly. You're not behind a closed door letting them cry it out for two, four, six, eight minutes at a time because um, that's the difference between actually creating a stress response in our babies uh, and, you know, on the flip side of, you know, that hand-in-hand stay listening is really, you know, honouring your child, you know, our, our, our children and allowing them to, to feel safe to express, um, you know, their the spectrum of emotions which they do every day. Um, so, you know, getting back to this client, I guess, you know, that's the emotional well-being part of my work and we sort of worked on all of that. It was actually really um, I think the second night she decided to move him into his cot. So this is the baby who had been co-sleeping sleeping and breast sleeping for seven months of his life and he slept pretty much, I think he woke twice. He's just like she put him down in his cot, he rolled over, went to sleep. <laughs> she's, all, she's always fed him to sleep. Mm. Rolled over, went to um, fed once at 10 and then at 4 and woke up at 7. And, um, and, and I just like I still talk about that case because I think, you know, and it gives parents faith because when we start working together, some people think it's going to be such a long process, you know, my goodness, especially in the case that kids have been feeding to sleep for 12 months and I think it's going to be a long, drawn-out, painful um, process for the whole family, lots of crying, lots of tears and tantrums from parents and babies. Um, but it doesn't need to be. Some kids, it doesn't matter how long um, they've, they've been used to having these habits or, or relying on these patterns to get to sleep, you know, given the chance and and also, you know, the supported to, to make these changes that, you know, they can quite easily. So um, that's why I just I think that's another reason that I just love what I do because every, every family is completely different. Every child continues to amaze and inspire and, and surprise me really that um, I think it's almost like the more I work, more clients I work with, more families I work with and, and the more babies I get to know, the more I realise I don't know <laughs> because, you know, it's just you can never, you expect the unexpected, I like to say. <laughs> they may just surprise you but, um, yeah, so um, so that was, I guess, yeah, that's one 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 client um, that sort of sticks out to my mind. But, um, you know, that's – and another uh, – you know, that was a seven-month-old. I just actually finished working with a 21-month-old and this is, I guess, going back to my experience and how difficult it can be in introducing a new sibling <clears throat> to the family. So this family had a 21-month-old and he was expecting a little brother. So the mum actually started working with me a week before she was due to have her second baby and that's always like a oh, – sirens for me thinking oh no this is going to be really hard like the, you know the kids are going to be going through a lot of emotional stuff and am I going to be help am I going to be able to help in that one week and not that obviously I'm going to put myself under that pressure but obviously I really want to um we just changed a nap time and started doing those emotional well-being things that I talked about before that special time and you know the play listening and um which is kind of like the roughhousing play um and also um 
the the stay listening uh, and he started sleep he was he was up three hours at a time when we first started working together so he would wake up anytime between 10 and three and be up for three hours playing oh, and of course, yeah every single night and mum was exhausted obviously um, one week off giving birth to a second child so not really getting a whole lot of sleep and then we started doing I think it was just, yeah a week and he was sleeping through before the baby came along she brought the baby home a week later and um, he's been sleeping through everything sorry amazing just yeah it's just an example of how it can be so simple it doesn't need to be obviously you do get you the ones that um a little bit more challenging but yeah and what age do you work up to Sophie like what about the child that you know is a bit scared there's monsters or nightmares or some of these things I guess you come across Yes, sure. So I normally work up to the age of three. Um, that being said, you know, a lot of these techniques, and, and I actually, if I'm going to be honest, the reason I did zero to three was at the very start when I started my business, I was using more of a behavioral approach. I think um, I, I I guess I was inspired by my experience with my consultant and because her approach was very much kind of sleep school, very much behavioral, I did start out that way. I obviously, I went and did my study and I obtained my um, certification in maternity and child sleep consulting where not that behavioral techniques was a focus, but it was a big part of of the program and, you know, an avenue for really changing sleep patterns. So I started off that way. And that's why I said zero to three when I first started because anything after three, normally it was just like kind of too hard basket when it became to behavioural challenges and it was kind of, um, yeah, and that's, um, I know that sounds really bad, but it was really kind of you did any anything older than that and you're dealing with years and years of, I felt out of my depth, I think, when I first started, if I'm going to be honest, in dealing with, yeah. with children any older than three. Now, you know, having this hand-in-hand approach, I really feel that, you know, it does, it's, it can be used for babies of all ages, you know, even teenagers, you know, these are, these are core tools that, that really can help with not only changing sleep patterns, but behavioral challenges and, you know, and just really strengthening, strengthening the the parent child connection for, for kids of any age. So I'd be more confident, I think, saying that I would be able to extend from, from three years old now um, with, with these emotional well-being. Um, techniques so um yeah so there's no no age limit I wouldn't say but you know I probably I probably like I like the babies I like zero I'd say zero to three zero to five is probably where I would um I do most of my my work understand yeah yeah yeah. yes so I mean is sort of frequent way like I mean the nightmares and um I guess night terrors is something that clients have spoken to me about yes Um, yes what would you be sort of looking at there uh well you know with night terrors and and nightmares that yeah they're quite different I guess there are similarities. A lot of them stem from fear. So, you know, in the case of nightmares, generally there's a catalyst for it. So, um, and you, although you can see it in babies as early as nine months, it's more common with older children. So, you know, from two onwards, and it tends to be, you know, they 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 have they'd start to develop fear of the dark. That sort of age, you know, they start to see more. I don't know, they might have more exposure to TV, video games, um, whatever that is. Um, 
And, you know, so whether it's a frightening event or frightening experience, whether they've read a book. I know I worked with a child who had nightmares and it was some book that you wouldn't even think that was scary, but the child perceived it as threatening. And um, and so, you know, those sort of experiences can lead to having nightmares like, you know, movies. Um the things that you can obviously do or, you know, just the fear of the dark and fear of monsters and everything like that, I think, you know, can, can cause, cause those sort of things. Um, so, you know, the things that I like to do with kids with nightmares would be, you know, really accessing their, their um, or addressing their routine. Also making sure that their exposure, they're not watching, you know, you sort of monitoring what they're watching on TV because I mean, even some of the stuff on ABC for kids can be quite scary. I've sort of sat down with my children at times and, you know, or even movies like especially Disney movies <laughs> can be very. Oh, yeah. Disney movies. I know. I know. Very scary. Um, so, you know, it's always important to, to monitor what your child is seeing and what they're reading. Um, first and foremost Um, and really I think by the time most of them have nightmares they're in a good space to be able to communicate what older children can communicate what the fear is so you know they can say that they're scared of the dark or that there's monsters under their bed or anything like that so I think really important is you know addressing where the, the source of that fear is if they can communicate it otherwise it really is sort of you know an early bedtime can definitely help a lot of people think that, you know, later bedtime equals uh, later wake time in the morning, which is not true. It's like quite the contrary. It's um, the later bedtime uh, generally equals an early rising time. So um, being overtired is probably a really big factor that contributes towards both night, t- night terrors and nightmares. Um, so really focusing on a routine that they're rested, they're getting enough sleep. If they still have a nap during the day, definitely get it, get them to have their sleep. Or if they're not having a nap, that they have that downtime during the day. Um, avoid overstimulation because obviously that can that can you know trigger um, them to wake overnight. And um, and then just you know having a look at their environment to make sure that you know if they are scared of the dark, you might put a soft salt lamp in there so it's not so dark for them. Or if they need you to leave the door open, or you know if they need to you know, at the time, if you need to sit by their bed for a little while while they go to sleep. So those sort of things, you know, depending on on obviously how old the child is and, and what the sleep, um, I guess, what, what the fear is around, you know, what the cause for the nightmare is. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about night terrors, there seems to be a genetic um, component with night terrors. So uh, with with my, most babies who have, and, and again, it seems to be in older children um, from two plus but it can happen early uh what you seem is that either some person in the family it doesn't have to be mum or dad but it can be like uncle or auntie or a relation has um experienced them themselves so it tends to be that genetic influence there um they tend to happen while nightmares are generally more sort of past midnight you sort of see them when they get into a lighter stage of sleep um you know between sort of three and five or something in the morning um and when I say generally it's generally you know I know a lot of kids will wake from nightmares in the first half of the night but when you're talking about the comparisons between nightmares and night terrors night terrors seems to be more so in the early hours so once they get into that deep sleep um around 11 o'clock they seem to seem to happen most mostly the same time every night and they will happen often so you know if they're not every night they might happen every second night or something like that so um generally that happens you know around the 11 o'clock mark and 
with a nightmare, I guess it's different because the kid will wake up and they'll be normally pretty scared and they'll normally be able to communicate that there was something scary and they're fully conscious, whereas night terrors, you can go down and they're normally thrashing about or they can be screaming and they seem absolutely frightened but they're still in an altered state of consciousness so they're not aware that you're in the room with them. Um, and that can be probably more frightening for parents, I think, than than for the child themselves because seeing your child in that sort of state and knowing that there's nothing you can do about it uh, can be quite debilitating. So I normally just say, you know, depending on the reasons, you know, if it's genetic, kids normally do grow out of it as they get older, you know, from sometimes up to the age of seven, sometimes earlier. Um, but, you know, there's certain things depending on the severity and how often that the night terrors are happening are normally you know there's a there's a product now it's called lully and it actually um vibrates it's like a mat and um place it in the bed and it actually vibrates um to wake the child up at the normal time that they have their their night terrors it sort of wakes the child up into a lighter stage of sleep so they don't actually get into that um state of sleep for the to have the sleep terror which is night terror which is interesting and that's um been really effective um yeah yeah which is fantastic but um again you know all the important things what you can do even though the genetic um there's a genetic predisposition i guess that you know the same sort of things um, apply so not making sure they're not getting overtired you know diet's also really important you know so if they're having a lot of a lot of sugar or you know a lot of um, anti-sleep foods you know even sort of popcorn you know things that are difficult to digest um, a lot of uh, preservatives and artificial colorings etc they can all also contribute Um, you just want to really focus on them getting enough rest and avoiding excess stimulation so that can help Um, and then you know when if you notice that your child is having a night terror to know that it's never anything serious just to sit there and obviously make sure that they can't hurt themselves that's probably number one (laughs) so just making sure that you put any pillows around they're not going to hit themselves on the side of the bed or the wall or you know and just sitting with them and and, um and waiting the episode out you know so not picking them up not turning on the light not trying to wake them up out of their state it's just um just sitting with them and waiting for them to to come out, which they always do. So even though it can be really quite scary for parents at the time to to experience. So, yeah. Some great advice there. Um, I'd love for you to share a a quote or an affirmation that you use in, I guess, in your daily life um, around this issue or maybe even just parenting in general with the listeners. Sure. (laughs) My favourite, absolute favourite of all time and something I probably tell every single client would be, you know what, nothing's a problem unless it's a problem for you. And, you know, it's it sounds really simple, but it's as I was sort of touching on earlier, we all have different expectations around sleep. Some parents are happy. I work with parents sometimes who that you know, when we start working, their child is waking ten times a night, so you know, every hour pretty much. And then, you know, they're more than happy to get up three or four times a night. Absolutely happy to. And I'm thinking, gosh, I wouldn't be, but <laughs> you know, like they are stoked to get to that point. Whereas I start working with some parents and, you know, they're they're getting up only twice and they're not prepared to do that. So um, I think, you know, nothing's a problem unless it's a problem for you. We've got all of this advice and all of um, these expectations uh, and 
unreasonable, unrealistic expectations around baby sleep, you know, how many books there are out there and there's, you know, professionals and, you know, YouTube clips and, you know, settling techniques and, and this routine that's going to work and they all promise you a magic solution and a quick fix for your baby to sleep seven to seven or, you know, to sleep through the night. And, you know, I'm, I'm calling bullshit on it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like yeah. there's no, there is no quick fix and there is no magic solution. And, you know, most of them focus, unfortunately, on a one size fits all approach and you know we're all kind of trying to keep up with the joneses and what this person's doing and oh but bobby's child sleeps you know seven to seven that must be something that i'm doing and so but you know when you actually ask the parent you know if if you stop looking around what everyone else is doing like what are you prepared to do you know um you know are you prepared to do you still want to you know i'll deal with a lot of co-sleeping families some of them you know still want to co-sleep some of them are only co-sleeping um and even though they are attachment parents they're only co-sleeping because it's out of out of convenience not choice you know um and i think it's just a really important reminder that you know it's not a problem nothing's a problem unless it's a problem with you you don't have to wean from the dummy if you don't mind getting up five times a night to replace it you don't have to wean from the dummy if your child's not waking overnight for you to replace the dummy um so the same sort of thing goes you know i guess with feeding to sleep it's a big one that it's probably the main issue that i deal with with families is breaking that feed to sleep habit habit or pattern because it has become a problem for the family so what you see often with feed to sleep is that it it interferes with self-settling so a baby will wake after they've just been put down to sleep or will continue to wake overnight because they need to be fed back to sleep um, and they're unable to settle themselves back when they wake out of a lighter stage of sleep overnight. Um, but if the, I know a lot of families too that feed to sleep and their baby sleeps through the night, so that's not a problem. So, you know, that's sort of nothing's a problem unless it's a problem for you. It rings true for everything and I guess that's what I do ask every single client. When they ask me any question, um, you know, should I be doing this? It's almost like they, yeah, they ask me, should I be doing this? You know, should I be weaning from the dummy? And that's my response. <laughs> Nothing's a problem unless it's a problem with you. Is it a problem? No, it's not. Okay, well, you know what? Keep doing it. Yeah. No, I love that. It's very real. I think you're the first one to drop the BS uh, word on the podcast. So that's great. You've got a claim to fame. <laughs> Sorry, I just I'm so I think it's great. I think it's great. Like I think just you know, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's good because you know people do have these unfair expectations and just what they put on themselves. You know yeah. the pressure yeah. on themselves, like you said, to keep up with the Joneses and you know have their makeup on before school drop off and all. Like mm. just I mean, there's so many. I mean, that's just one, right? But you know to have yeah. that clean, tidy house and you know mm-hmm. go over this all day. But I think yeah, no, I was yeah. just I just letting you know that was funny for me. <laughs> Um, I'd love you to share um, just something that you'd want to give uh, advice to to a new mum. I mean, you kind of just touched on it there anyway, or something you would have loved to have told yourself when um, when you were pregnant. Bit of advice. Bit of advice when I was pregnant. Um, that you could have told yourself. Yeah, new mums out there. I think it still comes back to the pressure. Um, you know, you don't have to be perfect. I, I think there's no such thing, you know, one thing I really love to say is there's no such thing as perfect parenting. You know, it's it's good enough parenting. You know, I think we're always chasing, 
you know, to be perfect parent and, and everything, you know, you were just saying, like, you know, to have a clean house, clean car, you know, to, to always look good for drop off and everything. And these expectations, you know, to, to maintain a household and, and to get have your finances in order and, and to have your baby sleeping. And it's just, you know, and the reason I did pull that BS word before is... You can say it, I just... It is, oh my goodness, it's just, you know, it is what it is. But, um, you know, I'll just say just try just go with the flow you know like babies will sleep obviously um you know with this using emotional well-being it doesn't I don't think baby sleep and the whole experience of parenthood has to be that hard I think we can we can work you know harder not not harder even smarter but I think we can work smarter you know if you can like emotional well-being and and really addressing the core of 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 what your baby needs, like tuning into your intuition is um, totally underrated. I think, Um, you know, I say to all my clients, um, you know, again, following through with what I was saying before, you know, when they say, should I do this? Should I do that? What do you want to do? What do you feel is the right thing for you and your baby? And most of them, we all have the answers. We just don't trust ourselves because of all the information that we have out there. And it's just so overwhelming. We sort of think that, we have to be doing what what the girl next door is doing or, you know, but, you know, your friend down the road had had great experience with Tizzy Hall, so that's how you're going to get your baby to sleep. So I think if you really tune into your intuition, what your baby needs and what is right for you and your family, you you do have all the answers. Um, So that would be what I would would have said, you know, back um, to me. All those, all those years ago to, to really just do what feels right and not worry about what other people are saying or doing. So, Very good advice. Um, could you share also some resources that you wanted to share with listeners that either on this topic or parenting in general? Yeah, sure, sure. So I think probably the biggest one, um, so hand-in-hand parenting, absolutely love hand-in-hand parenting. Um, and, um, oh, sorry, web, website. So they do a lot of courses and everything. So okay. that was... Um, yeah. Yeah, so Pioneer. So handinhandparenting.org. Um, so that's um, – I think there's uh, different um, – like just courses you can you can purchase and there's a lot of free information and blog and everything on there about um about you know parenting um and you know in in a more conscious way I guess parenting through connection mm-hmm. um also I think another book that really inspired me along this journey was um Aletha Salter's The Aware Baby and that um she is awareparenting.com um and that is really sort of again focused on the parent-child connection so very similar to to what Hand in Hand does but uh you know i guess that for anybody sort of wanting to look into you know the healing power of crying and and that philosophy so to speak um you know and how birth trauma and all of those sort of things can impact our baby's ability to sleep well or you know how settled they they are and 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 everything like that i think um you know that was a great reference uh, you know life-changing for me um so that's a web yeah aware parenting um the aware parenting institute so awareparenting.com um and so i think probably yeah they're the main influences i also love uh janet lansbury and um and also magda gerber's approach which is um rye i'm not quite sure rie um which is very similar um they all have their differences but um all all just um great references and resources so so that was handinhandparenting.org if um if anybody wanted to have a look um at that sort of um style we'll put them in the show notes as well so people can find them that way as well and of course i'd love for you to share sophie how people can find out about your services and get more in touch with the work that you do 
Beautiful. Well, I've got um, a Facebook page and I normally um, – I have um, – I post my blog and, and, and post regularly on my Facebook page. Um, so that is obviously facebook.com and Happy Baby Sleep is the name of my business. And also on – I have my blog and you can contact me on my email. My email is sophie at happybabysleep.com.au and my website is www.happybabysleep.com.au. So you can either send me an inquiry on the website or email me directly. I'm more than happy. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and, yeah, obviously work with more people in this in this way. So, And I think everybody could find some pearl of wisdom regardless of, you know, I think there's always something that we could be doing a little bit, um, yeah, more on the, on the child's needs and less than always on our need. Um, or even just, you know, that they could find something that, um, they could just do a little bit better. So, I mean, already there's so many pearls of wisdom that you dropped on today's episode, even for me with one of uh, five years old and one of two and a half years old, I already got some great, great tips there as well. And just also, like you said, just normalizing everything for everyone as well, that what worked for one may not work for, for another parent and also what worked for one of your children may not work for the other. So, um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've loved listening to you. I can hear how passionate you are and, um, you know, your, your babies, they, sound like they're pretty close together are they yes i've got um two years apart so i've got uh almost five almost three and almost one so yeah so you're definitely in the trenches of uh practicing what you preach i can imagine in the deep trenches (laughs) (laughs) actually as i was saying before like i've just coming off two nights of um of like sleeping uh no sleep pretty much awake every one to two hours with a teething um almost one year old so i'm definitely going through that myself at the moment and um yeah but you know you've got to live it to be able to help other people so so uh, just just keeping it real kaz (laughs) yeah i like that so much thank you so much for reaching out and i know you're a listener as well so that's really nice to um to hear and and, uh, yeah, I just really want to thank you for the work that you're doing and keeping it really holistic. That's something that, um, yeah, talks to me and I'm sure we'll talk to the listeners of Mums the Word as well. So thank you. Thanks so much, Kaz. It's been a pleasure to be involved and um, thanks. Love your work. So keep up the great work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Mums the Word. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and join us on our Facebook page to help us share the message to more mums all over the world. We look forward to having you join us again next time here on your trusted source for all mums everywhere, Mums the Word. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.